Welcome to Living Well Into the Future. I'm your host, Julie B. Adler. This series brings men and women ranging in age from their teens through their 90s to discuss vital issues relating to food, housing, climate, and health. Our guests are problem solvers, solution makers. Learn what their contributions and experiences were and are their challenges, and their successes. Consider how their insights might spark your discussions among the generations and inspire action toward a healthy and secure future for all. This episode, Good Design for a Healthy Future, is the first of our series on housing. If you missed any of our four-part series on food or want to listen to certain episodes again, you can find them on WTBRFM.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can even ask your smart device to play the Living Well into the Future podcast. My interest in housing began when, in a summer job during law school, I discovered how decisions relating to housing design, even something as simple as whether your doorway faced your neighbors, affected the strength of the community. As a lawyer in the 70s, I worked with a local housing authority in the Northeast to obtain funding for senior housing, which thrives to this day. Later on, I represented developers and most recently served on a technical committee of the Mayor's Task Force on Affordable Housing in San Antonio, Texas. During that time, I've met many knowledgeable and accomplished people whom I'd like to introduce you to. Some are national, even international experts in their field. Some you may have never heard of. They and other guests whom I've just met have a wealth of knowledge and experience to share. Today, we're looking into good design for a healthy future from the perspective of award-winning architects. Ted Flato, age 67, principal in the nationally and internationally acclaimed architectural firm Lake Flato, and Evan Morris, age 33, a project architect in the firm, are our guests. We would like you to come away with insights into the elements of design meant to last generations as well as how members of different generations integrate their strengths by working together. The clarity of, of the reason to build them, we were able to develop a very clear philosophy that architecture ought to be connected to its place, that the weather ought to be a driver and, and inform the shape and the form of the buildings. And landscape was uh, obviously, an extremely important component because we were thinking about the outdoor space as much as the indoor space. And sustainability was a natural outgrowth of that approach, which was that because we were trying to connect to the outdoors, it meant that you'd have to consider how the, a breeze could cool a building down or, or how you would open up a house in different ways. That was Ted Flato. Ted Flato founded the architecture firm Lake Flato with David Lake in 1984. Ted was born and raised in Corpus Christi, Texas, and received his BS in architecture from Stanford University. Since its founding, Lake Flato's work has received more than 300 international, 
national and regional design awards and has been featured in three monographs, over 150 books, and 200 national publications. Lake Flato has received 14 American Institute of Architects Community on the Environment Top 10 Awards, the most recent in 2022. Those awards recognize their commitment to design performance and sustainability. Their most recent book, published by Rizzoli, is Lake Flato Houses, Respecting the Land. I first interviewed Ted Flato in 2001. At that time, Lake Flato had been in business for 17 years with a staff of 15. In 2022, the firm has 150 employees and they build and design projects that range in size from homes to apartments, dormitories, college campuses, and urban developments. When I recently met Ted Flato and Evan Morris at their offices, my first question to Ted was, how have you kept the design integrity that is a signature of your work? We were really lucky as to how we began our firm. We began as a partnership, David Lake and Ted Flato. So first of all, one has to collaborate when you're already working with one other person. That was a good foundation, but the critical piece of the foundation was the work when we first started. And it was projects that were in the country. They were houses on big landscapes, ranches. Our clients' objectives were to connect to the environment. They wanted to be connected to the place where this house that they were asking us to build would be built. And so style took a back seat. It was really about how could they be as connected to the outdoors as possible. So often more porch than house, as we would say, they were often passively cooled or passively heated so that you could turn off the air conditioner, turn off the heat and block a cold wind or open up to the cool Southeast breeze and be more connected to the outdoors. So that allowed us to have a clear philosophy that then as we started to grow, as we had access to more work, more diverse projects, access to more architects, other architects would join us as we were getting more work. They were coming to us, both clients and young architects, because of the kind of work we were doing. And that philosophy that architecture ought to be connected to its place and the weather and using materials that were from those particular locations, that could be used at a variety of scales and places and all over the country. When I first asked you that question, I asked you about keeping the design aesthetic consistent, and you corrected me and said that it was a design philosophy, and you distinguished that. Yes, it's a philosophy. So philosophy is something that can be embraced by many. And that was really the key and the answer to your question, which is that how does one uh, continue to do consistent architecture as you grow, as you have more opportunities at different scales, and as the population of your office goes from, as you said, 15 to 150. The way that works is to have a clear understanding of what one's goals are when you're building and designing. And we were able to do that because we had this very clear philosophy that it just started from these simple houses that were in the country. 
I met with Evan Morris separately from Ted in order to avoid the echo that comes from people who worked together for years and to try to find out more purely how the philosophy that Ted expresses has been absorbed by the next generation of architects. We think a lot about what it means to produce place-based architecture. Right. Architecture that's rooted in its landscape, its physical landscape, but also its cultural and historical landscape. And so I would say that before we move into the digital, when we're conceptualizing a project, we think a lot about the context and this place. So that starts at a very broad level. In the case of a, a house or a building, we think often in terms of historical structures first. Or at least we want to consider them. I think you talked to Ted before this, and, and one of my favorite things that he says is that we like to look at, at agricultural buildings. And it's because those buildings were built by people who couldn't afford to get it wrong, which I think is a pretty remarkable place to start. These people were producing buildings that had to be highly functional. They had to be designed to be in tune with their weather and their environment. And they had to because that was their livelihood. So we start conceptualizing a building often with assumptions that are made by looking at historical structures and agrarian structures. Now, once we get to the digital, there are lots of inputs. We can bring in weather data and topographical data. We can bring in material information about the building itself. There's almost endless numbers of inputs that we can bring into the digital environment, but our assumptions always begin by looking around the physical place, by a study of what's come before us and how that's worked. And so it's a combination of a very intuitive approach at the beginning, coupled with lots and lots of rigorous testing. The firm's philosophy emphasizes place, weather, and sustainability. So, of course, weather and climate are major considerations in the design. Climate change is a huge issue. Obviously, buildings account for an enormous percentage of energy use, which is part of the challenge of climate change and where that energy comes from. And so we as architects and builders have a lot of responsibility to, to build it right. And once you build a building, it sits around for an awful long time. So you have to be thinking about what it's going to be like. What's that building going to be doing in 20, 50 years? And you don't want to be thinking about it as something that you're going to tear down. Tearing something down is an enormous amount of energy goes into that. So you have to build smartly and thoughtfully for the future. Build something that four or five new owners are going to enjoy. Because often you think you're building only for this one particular person or situation. But in reality... These buildings are going to be used by many other people and maybe many different uses. So building thoughtfully and with spaces that are adaptable is critically important. So that's one aspect of just of just being a better citizen about building. But yeah, climate change is then it's daunting on the level of as we're developing land. Ted mentioned that you think of building in terms of their life over generations. What considerations do you have to think of that extends the life of the building? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think because we're an architecture firm whose, I think, first priorities are about landscape and preserving those places, we have to move with an acknowledgement that inherently what we do is 
incredibly impactful on the environment. Even though we work with and, and in service of a particular landscape, we know that the things that we're doing are permanent, they're impactful, they have consequence. And so because of that, we know that we, we have to take an incredibly long-term perspective on what it means to build a structure and build a home for somebody. And so we also believe that's the key to sustainability. The most sustainable projects are the ones that are loved and cherished and don't get torn down. And so we can build an incredibly sustainable building out of the latest and greatest of materials. And if it's not loved and it's not cherished, then we haven't done enough. So we like to think about houses generationally and not just for the first owner, but for the next owner and not just for that family, but maybe a family after theirs. And so the key to making sure that that's possible is to, to think about spaces that are timeless, that are not tied to a particular technology. We do smaller houses than I think people expect. And we try to push people into the outdoors as much as possible. We create rooms that may be quite modest in scale. A bedroom, for instance, is a place to sleep. And often if we have the opportunity to work in a wonderful landscape, then we know that's the place you wanna be during the day. We try to make things modest, highly connected to the outdoors, flexible and not tied to a particular technology or activity. And in that way, we think that they can serve not just the purposes of the current generation, but hopefully more to come. Ted, another aspect of your philosophy is place. You started in Texas, and now you design all over the country. Yes. So, yeah, those early projects were in the country in Texas, and they were very Texas-specific. Although the great thing about working in Texas is that it it's a big range. You can go from West Texas, and you have very different conditions versus South Texas and or East Texas. And each one of those regions of Texas really screened for a different type of architecture. And the materials were different in those different places. And the weather is different in those different places. So that set us up for doing architecture that would be influenced by these different places. And so then as we got to work in projects in other parts of the country, we were able to explore those places. And it's a wonderful kind of arc. It's a wonderful kind of work to do is that you get to delve into what makes a place special. And so we ask those questions when we're working in different areas is what is the special opportunity here? And and what are the special materials or the special crafts of this place? Or what's the weather saying? That is how it stays consistent. Evan, when you start out working with the owner, do you immediately walk the property? It's a gradual process and not every project is the same and not every home is the same and not every owner is the same. And for us, we tailor our approach to the project and, and to the particular person with whom we get to work. And so I, I would say at the beginning, conceptual ideas are still communicated in a quite an analog way and starts with sketching. And that sketching normally begins when we first visit the site with them. So all projects start by walking the land. We start with the owner on the property and it helps us not only get a sense for the, for the landscape, it gives us a sense for the owner's knowledge of that landscape. You will find out so quickly where an important place on a piece of land is to a particular person. You get to hear stories about the memories that they have made in those places, the particular tree that's quite special. All of these things become really apparent, but only when you get to walk the land. So it always starts there. 
And often we'll start sketching on that first trip, a simple idea, something intuitive and narrative based. We might know that we want to nestle up against a particular hill, or we might know that a particular view is wonderful when the sun is in this one place and lighting up a landscape. And so we start there and we start sketching. Soon when we get back into the office, we will begin to develop some 3D characteristics in a computer program. The tools of the architect's trade were beginning to change 20 years ago when I last spoke with you. Architects were moving from hand drawing to CAD, computer-assisted design, and now you have many other tools. What are the most useful and do they alter the end product or are there different elements that you can take into consideration in your design? that you weren't able to when everything was drawn by hand? We started our office in 1984 and we were doing freehand drawing. We didn't even, it was because we were small and we had to do the work. When I say we, David and Ted and a few others, and the idea was how to do it as efficiently and quickly as possible. And we found that if you just drew freehand, literally without even a parallel bar, just using grid lines in the paper, that you could, you could draw really quickly. And since we were in the business of building and designing, we wanted to limit the amount of time you had to draw. And so we were always interested in efficiency. And then soon, the, before we knew it, the, we had technology was starting to roll along. And we had a fantastic younger architect who, he was an amazing draftsman, Robert Trinidad. And he, but he also had this great, talent for tinkering with stereos and doing lighting design for our local theater group. And so he immediately was the person to embrace technology just in its fresh early phases. And so we became very progressive about embracing the new technology because we were, we were like a country without technology and suddenly the cell phone showed up. We could jump. And we did. We weren't going from one crude system. We were going from no system. And so we started embracing technology. And it and it helped in a myriad ways. The One is the method of, of producing drawings, which I'll get to. But just the technology of being able to analyze buildings. When we were doing those first, quote, houses in the country, it was a very intuitive process about how we would design. We, we knew the wind was coming from a certain direction in the summer, the cool breezes. We knew cold winds would come from the Northwest and we knew we could block them. You knew how to, how they might flow through a room with a chimney effect, but we didn't really know what the temperatures were going to be like. We just knew they were going to be better, but as technology and access to larger scale projects and even larger budgets, we suddenly needed to, t to go from intuition to true science. And so we developed a really strong uh, sustainability department. We hired Heather Holdridge, who's the only engineer that we have in our office, to start elevating the science part of our design. So technology first showed up in the greatest way, just in, in the analysis of how our buildings would work. And then it's continued to grow. So we now evaluate buildings after they're finished and, and check to see what our early assumptions were relative to how they perform ultimately after a year or two. But the other great thing about technology is that when we first began, a young architect would come out of school and they'd be quite green in the way of knowing how to 
put buildings together. And so it takes them a while to be real productive citizens in the office. Now it's not the case. They show up with remarkable design talents in the way of three-dimensional imaging with all of the different technologies that are now available to us for drawing. And so they have now, they know much far more than we know and have far better capabilities than we have are the older architects. And so they're immediately really quite valuable and fantastic members of the team. So they have more agency in that early part of their career. You mentioned that one of your tools was essentially the, the, the augmented reality where you can see your design in three dimension and participate. Yeah, so we jump scale from freehand to CAD drawing, but we jumped even further into all of our CAD work is three-dimensionally smart. And and so when we draw a detail, it thinks about it in three dimensions. And now a client can, or, or a young architect can see exactly what their designs look like without any distortion. And it's these marvelous goggles that one puts on. And you can walk through our projects. And in the old days, I would spend a lot of time speaking with a young architect saying, that's really, no, you don't really actually know. That scale is different than you think it is. Because in the early days of kind of drawing technology, one would do these amazing drawings that, that just were ludicrous looking and wild and exciting. And, but they were not real buildings because of they were doing shape and scale and space, but not really thinking about what those actual rooms felt like because they didn't know, they didn't have the ability. It was always very distorted and interesting looking, but distorted. And so now one can check and see, can walk through a building and actually see the difference between a 12 foot high space or a 15 foot high space or an eight foot high space that has smaller dimensions and plan and really see what those rooms are feeling like and where the details come together. And so both clients and young architects can all be on the same foundation as we explore designs together. Those tools have allowed us to become even more collaborative and it's fun. It's, it's, you asked that early question about how the work stays together as you go from 15 to 150. And part of it is even this technology of being able to quickly share uh, a space with both client and other architects that are working on the project together. And you can get quickly around whether you're headed in a good direction or a bad direction. So it's quite interesting. Evan Morris was one of the architects that came to Lake Flato with knowledge of computer-assisted design, CAD already in his toolkit. I asked him, what does this miraculous tool do? Well, it can do almost anything. It's astonishing now, even though I I think I'm a relatively young person in the profession, the technology is moving so quickly that it often feels like it's passing me by as well. But I certainly emerged within the architectural profession and and education firmly within the the CAD era. And so I, I certainly learned many of the programs in school that we use today. And increasingly, programs continue to come out and continue to develop and become more robust. And increasingly, what we're doing is trying to simulate in the digital world things that we expect to see in the physical world. And it's fairly broad these days. And we work here at Lake Flato entirely in a three-dimensional digital space. And so whether it's a house or a school or a, a high-rise building, we are going to build that structure in a 3D way in a digital environment.
Up to this point, we've been talking about design in terms of philosophy and what goes into the design. And now we're going to talk about the specifications, what the buildings are made of. Building systems has been something that has been a, a very important part of our work. Beginning with early houses in the country, we needed to think about who was going to be building those and think about how you would leverage the craftsmanship and the materials for those particular areas because they're in remote locations. And that has driven us always to ask the question when we first begin a project is, how are we going to build this? How are we going to do this efficiently? And so currently we're working in a number of innovative ways of building, which is always to crack that nut about how to build more thoughtfully and efficiently and ultimately less expensively. And so we're doing some large buildings in a building system called mass timber, which is using wood in a really efficient way. Not necessarily something really new, it's glue lambs it used to be around forever. But the idea is you use wood, small elements of wood, either screwed or glued together so that they can make a stronger beam or a stronger floor panel. Is that manufactured wood? So it's ma a manufactured wood. First you have a tree, but you can cut the tree down at an early stage. And because you're cutting the tree up into smaller pieces, it's like plywood at a different scale. You're using wood in a very efficient way. And, and wood is a very sustainable material, far more sustainable than steel or concrete, the amount of energy that goes into it. And so it's, it's a, something that's good for the environment. So first you begin with material that's good for the environment, and then you start to use it in a more efficient way. And a lot of that is, is done in the area where trees are grown. And so Pacific Northwest or Canada is one of the big areas. And you can start before you're even starting construction on your projects. At Trinity University, we're doing a new humanities campus. And one of the buildings is built out of this mass timber. And we were able to, just before we even started pouring concrete, the wood planks and everything were being made off-site. And so they would then be delivered by the time the slab was poured. Suddenly, the, all the sticks and floors and systems were able to be there. They arrive at the job site and it's assembled pretty rapidly. So it was a way to build uh, rapidly and, and sustainably and, and beautifully. And so that's one building system. We're so it can scale. From small to large. It can. And so that, but this notion of prefabrication is something that we're very interested in. So we started a number of years ago, we would get more requests for doing these houses in the country. And the challenge was always, who's going to build it? And then the challenge also became, can we build less expensively? And can we somehow avoid the challenges that we had in the past, which is building with a new contractor who'd never done it before? And isn't used to looking at drawings. And so that's where we decided that we've got to be able to do this better and more efficiently. And so we came up with the concept of the porch house. The idea is rooms would be built in a factory. We had a partner in it that had a big factory and didn't have a lot of product at the time. And so he would build our rooms in the factory and then they'd be delivered to a site 90% complete. And they'd roll up to the site and, and then we would connect these different rooms with porches, hence the porch house. And the porches would be built on side. They would normally be outdoor spaces, outdoor breezeways and porches. And the bones of those things would have enough texture that the kind of more boring rooms that were built in a factory, the, the combination would be interesting. And it also would allow us 
because every site is different, it would allow us to start to collect outdoor space because we could arrange these rooms on a site in a different way. And the thought was that you could end up with a house that was intimately connected to the outdoors, but relatively inexpensively built. And that was the idea of the porch house. I noticed on your website that you're transporting the, these houses far and wide. We are. We're building them in a factory. We can then put them on wheels. And for the most part, they're pretty easy to go and locate in different parts of Texas. However, because we're a national firm, there's a great deal of interest beyond the borders. And so we started doing them in a different way. We started building them in panels, much like those these structural panels that we were building for a new humanities building at Trinity. We were working with a couple of different prefabrication companies, one in Los Angeles and one in, in New Hampshire, that build it with panels, wall panels and beams. And so about 50% of a building can be built offsite and then delivered. And then you have the other 50% to finish it up. And so that is another method that we're using to build these porch houses. And then now even a third one, we're now working with a company in Dallas that is doing large kind of whole blocks of, of houses. So multiple houses all together in more of an urban setting. And we're working with them to take these porch houses and simplify the system where, because there's tighter configurations and there's less uh, need for all the flexibility that we're using with our rural designs for these porch houses. So these urban porch houses are uh, even more efficient and they're now we're working with them to build a factory, to build more of those. One of the challenges of what I've been talking about is at least in the porch houses has been scale. It's one thing to come up with a great idea that makes sense, that would solve a lot of these challenges in building in remote locations, but really getting it where it's less expensive than building in other ways. You have to have scale. You have to be able to be building them constantly, not just one or two at a time. And we've been working on this now for probably 15 years. And that has been our challenge. We've been able to build a number of these, but we've never had enough demand, a constant demand to be able to get the prices down, to buy the windows in an efficient way. Scale is the thing that we desperately needed. And now with this group in, in Dallas, I think we may have the potential of creating scale, which will finally fulfill our, our original goal, which was to get design into more people's hands at a better price. Are you now anticipating building a community with us? That's what we're hoping. So we, and I think we'll, we have an interesting partner who began with this idea that they would do in the hundreds, two hundreds houses all in same several blocks together or infill in urban, tighter urban settings. And then this whole notion of, of prefabrication, which is slightly different. So prefabrication comes in many forms and fashions, but the more you do offsite and the less you do onsite, the better chance that you will end up with a product at a very particular price point. If you only do half of it offsite and then half of it on-site, there's more variables there and the situation can evolve and the exact cost of those products can be very different. But it still always makes sense to limit what you're doing on-site if you can. You could end up having higher quality, 
you've got control setting situations in a factory. And then building off site allows you to not impact the site. It shortens the length of building time, at least the on-site building time, because you're building part of it in a factory in a remote setting and you haven't yet even put a backhoe into the dirt. And so in, in some situations, like a recent project that we were doing in Long Island that was out on the North Fork, that's an area where the permitting process is really quite involved. And so you're in a permitting situation almost for a whole year and you can't start construction during that time. And it's an expensive place to build. And so if you can build half your project remotely, you could start earlier uh, because you're actually doing it in the factory while you're getting your permits. And that's what we did there. And it was, it was a wonderful way of building. We, and I, and, it, and the whole idea was so wonderful too. It was a house on the water. It was a beautiful Peconic Bay, the inner bay of Long Island. And we had it built in New Hampshire, the bones of the building. You can just imagine it's like a wonderful, great modern barn design this house that we were doing, but we wanted lots of windows and, you know, lots of connections to the outdoors. And so by building it with a real stiff wood frame and these very simple wood paneled roof structure, we could have a wonderful, very simple open space for this design. So anyway, we built it in New Hampshire, took it to the water, put it on a barge, shipped it across to Orient Point and, and then brought it over to the site. It was a wonderful thing to imagine this location that's adjacent to the water being built from barges and delivered across the water. It allowed us to, to build half remotely. Technology is the forefront of what we do. We think of, yes, we think of the outdoors. Yes, we think of landscaping spaces, but thinking about how a building is built is very important to us. And another effort that we're working on right now that we just completed that was featured at South by Southwest was a, a building that was done with a 3D printer. And so all the walls are printed, but they're concrete. So the 3D printer, instead of making a little model of plastic, it was making these walls out of pouring them in concrete. And the things that you can do with a 3D printer are pretty amazing. You can suddenly make curves and different shapes because this thing is just like a little pin going across the site. And so we combined these 3D walls within the mass timber roof and, and built an elegant, wonderful little house very quickly. It is another part of exploring our interests in building efficiently and smartly. And having relationships with, with companies that are interested in the same. And so this particular group that we're building with, it's a long-term relationship. Ted explained building systems. Evan will tell us about the materials that are incorporated into the homes that he's worked on. You are dealing with sophisticated owners, and you mentioned that the owners of all ages come with a lot of knowledge and specific requirements to you. What are the concerns that you're hearing? What are the issues in terms of materials first? 
Yeah, we do. We, we are lucky to work with owners and, and wonderful families of all ages, and some of them are now younger than me, and so that's a, a fun place Shocking. to be. It's when you get on an airplane and And how pilot, old are you? I'm, oh, I'm 33, and so that's quite young. It's like when you get on the airplane and the pilot is younger than you. That was a moment for me. So yes, our, our owners are uh, of all ages, and all are wonderfully knowledgeable about architecture, about sustainability, about building processes. We have owners who are engineering types who really love to get into the the sort of mechanics of the house and how it functions and how the mechanical systems work. We have owners who are very design attuned and are very keen to be part of that process, which is wonderful. And your question was about materials. So the kinds of materials that are sustainable, that are climate friendly, that are health conscious, what are they? Mm -hmm. What do they know that we don't know? We need to be thinking about materials in two ways quantitative way and a qualitative way. So the quantitative way that we think about materials and how which materials to use in a home is really about maximizing the impact of the material on the structure of the house, the aesthetic properties of the house while minimizing its impact on our resources. And so I think that's a fairly easy equation. We're looking for renewable resources that have the least impact, both from an energy perspective and a carbon perspective. And we want to use them as close to their sort of natural state as possible. So it was interesting to hear that you had done a long series about food. And I think in some ways, the food world is ahead of the architecture world in thinking about some of these things. The ideas of farm to table are maybe 15 years old. The ideas of eating locally are maybe a little bit newer than that. Those are all of the ideas that are making their way into the architecture world. We want to be using things that come from a relatively small radius around the project. We want to use them in the least processed form. And in that way, we minimize their their impact on our natural resources. So that's a kind of quantitative approach. We also take something of a qualitative approach, which is that it can't be just a race to the bottom. Again, to in order to make generational houses, in order to make houses that are cherished in love, we also acknowledge that sometimes you do cut down a very beautiful tree. And maybe it's a tree that has grown for a long time and is not rapidly renewable. But the way that tree and the timber that comes out of it could impact the experience of the home is such that we can create stewards of an environment through our choices as architects in the materials. The fact that the tree is a sacrifice, the fact that it's impactful, that can create a a sense of, a real sense of belonging to a particular place. So at Trinity University, when they took down a number of the wonderful trees, they converted it to furniture in the student places. Sure, and that's how we create heirlooms. That ability to connect one's physical environment to the natural resources in such a direct way is how we create stewards out of homeowners. And so it's not just that we, I'm so not an expert on this technology, but sometimes I see headlines on architectural magazines and things about growing houses out of mushrooms or something really exciting like that, which I'm, I'm sure is wonderful. And I hope that we, we get to do that. And, uh, and certainly that will be a renewable resource with hopefully very little impact on the environment. But in order to connect emotionally with people, we still may need to interject within those environments something that has a greater impact and in that way connect people to their environments. We talk a lot about biophilia, which is this idea that we are natural organisms that have a inclination, a natural inclination to be around other natural organisms 
And so that's an important component in, in our work. It's not just about the, the doing the most with the least, although that's a big part of it. It's also about having the most impact, both physically and emotionally, on those who get to experience the space. Among the philosophical principles of the firm that Ted enumerated was sustainability. Are your owners choosing you for, in part, not only for the aesthetics, but also for the sustainability? Absolutely. I think that we are fortunate in that for many of our owners, sustainability is a prerequisite. It's a given on a project. We don't necessarily have to sell owners on the idea that the home should be sustainable. I think many of our owners are on board with that when they come to us, which is a wonderful place to be. So I think that's a big part of the identity of the firm and the identity of the work. And what are the components of sustainability that you're dealing with? It used to be that I think the primary one was energy use, and that's still a big part of our focus. But our understanding of sustainability has also broadened. Today, we are talking a lot about indoor air quality and health. Really, this conversation for us started maybe five years ago or, or, or even more, but certainly has come to the forefront of the zeitgeist when we're talking about a world still grappling with COVID-19 and a global pandemic that very much had to do with air quality and particulate matter and all of these things that maybe we didn't know about a few years ago and now are on the tips of the tongues of all of our clients. So we're talking a lot about, about what it means to occupy a space in terms of its impact on our health. And we're looking a lot at, at things like mold and issues of indoor air quality for those who have respiratory issues outside of the pandemic. And what are the tools to address those things? These are really sort of material research tools. There are wonderful resources and organizations who are doing an enormous amount of material research. The Living Futures Institute, which puts together the Living Building Challenge, has developed what they call a a red list, which is a list of materials that contain carcinogenic or otherwise harmful chemicals. And so we have an enormous amount of data on the, the types of materials that could be harmful to us. And unfortunately, and, and it's quite scary, but many of the building materials that are very common contain these types of chemicals. So you're able to screen and purchase ones that don't have these qualities. Certainly. And we are learning all of the time in our, we call them specifications, but the technical specifications that we produce that tell the contractor which materials to use in the project are, are always evolving. And, and we continue to try to improve on the, the quality of the materials that, that we use. And I think the basics, and, and again, this is, I, I feel it's analogous to the food world, is that it doesn't take a lot of science to understand that the more processed the material the likely the less healthy for us it is. And so as a rule of thumb, we tend to try to use natural materials as close to their source as possible. And when in doubt, that's a pretty good place to start. Do you use solar power, wind, that sort of thing? Yeah, we call all of those on-site renewables, which is that we are producing renewable energy on-site. And almost all of our projects contain some amount of on-site renewable energy production. We don't start there. We always start what we call in a more passive way, designing a house that reduces its energy usage in passive strategies. So we talk a lot about 
what it means to ventilate a building if we're in a warm climate? Are there window strategies or operable strategies to the building such that we can promote breezes through the, the structure? Those are ways to reduce energy usage. And so we, we start by reducing as much as we can. We think about wonderful thermal envelopes and heavily insulated walls. In a cold climate, we think about ventilation and generous overhangs and lots of shade in a warm climate and all of these things. And that's a way to, to reduce energy use. And only at the end, only after we have exhausted our toolkit in terms of reducing, do we think about producing. So at the end, yes, we will often incorporate solar or wind, very often rainwater catchment and other ways of gathering the resources that are needed in the house. But we like to think of those things as bonuses at the end because we still have to do the hard work at the beginning to make sure we're being efficient. Lake Flato started out designing houses. In the years since, they have designed hotels, dormitories, a college campus, a commercial campus, among other things. In considering the design of housing on a larger scale than the single-family home, Ted explains how the same design principles scale up. You started with houses, and then, among other things, you've built uh, dormitories. So what is the difference in designing things? Are there some of the same considerations, some different considerations? It's all housing. It's how one lives. We enjoy getting to work at all these different scales of housing because they're for different types of people in different situations. As we've evolved with our houses, we've found that if you can connect one to the outdoors, if you can leverage the space beyond the windows, you can build smaller spaces. You can build more efficient spaces because you're borrowing the, the outdoors as part of your space. And you're thinking about how light comes into a room and how a room can be more expansive because it, it's erasing that line between indoors and out. And, and that has been something that we've been exploring all along in our housing. And so then when we had the opportunity to do projects that are more on either apartments or dormitory scale, that thinking still is there about how you can make smaller space feel larger and more expansive and, and those lessons that we learn by studying and thinking about the small just a, a single family house very much apply in, in larger scale and then you think about the importance of that contrast of in a single family house that contrast of bedrooms that can be perhaps smaller because they have a public room that is the room where everyone comes together and if that public room is significantly larger than the private rooms they're all in scale together. And so in a dormitory or an apartment, it's the same thing. It's you can have smaller spaces as long as you have these larger public spaces that bring people together. And so we think of living rooms in a single family house. It's a living room in a dormitory setting. It's just a larger room that you bring people together. And we think that same way all the way through on an urban scale level when we're doing things like the Pearl, the big redevelopment in San Antonio. We're thinking of the smaller kind of office spaces or retail spaces or restaurant spaces, and then thinking of the larger public rooms, the living rooms as the outdoor courtyards and plazas and things like that. It scales up is the point. We use the same term. We even use the term of some things that are challenging that we refer to as refrigerators because the refrigerator is the nemesis in, how, in domestic architecture because it's always, how are you going to work around the refrigerator? 
And, and so it's a similar kind of challenge of those objects in larger scale. We're in a period now where materials are hard to get, where labor is hard to get. Does that affect you as an architect building all these rather large projects? Lots have changed with the pandemic, the impact on first stalling out construction. You know, projects went on hold and then suddenly the pent-up demand was huge. And so lots of people wanting to build and then the supply chain and things sitting jammed up in ports because they were sitting there stalled out. So the result is that the cost of construction is increased. The availability of certain products is challenging. And so when you're now thinking about building, you do have to take all of those things into account. It is something that we're thinking about a lot that impacts your choices and thoughts about what to build with. And it's even more important, as I say now, to be more collaborative than ever with the person who you're building with and to be open-minded about the conditions and flexible. And at, a, at one point you would say, this is the exact material or this is the exact window that we are going to use. And now suddenly you need to be more open-minded and more flexible about it. That's a healthy thing. You're able to adapt. I think that's the trick always has always been from the very beginning. We were thrown challenges from those early projects that were in the country. We were working with people who were not used to looking at fancy involved mm -hmm. drawings. And so you had to adapt then you had to go, oh, I get it. What would be an easy material? And then they make a couple of suggestions and you think, oh, that material could be okay. It's a similar situation. It's supply shortages and things that you can, you suddenly go, oh, I get it. We should just then build out of X because that's something that's readily available. And that would be easy, more local instead of shipping things. So, so many healthy things can come from it. The idea that everything had to it was so easy to import everything. And now I think people are thinking differently about that. And I, I don't know, that's not a bad thing at all. Ted has been talking about the value of flexibility in dealing with shortages rising as a consequence of the p pandemic. I asked Evan about the flexibility necessary to deal with climate change. How does climate change figure in and change what you might have even thought about doing five years ago? Yeah, we know that the effects of climate change are going to mean that places that weren't very warm will become warmer. We know that it means that there will be more extreme weather events. And so I think we have all of those tools. Luckily, we are down here in South Texas where it's quite warm. And so we have been bringing a bit of our knowledge to places that were once much cooler. A place in New England may, may need a bigger hat than it used to have, some larger overhangs, a bit more shade. And we are bringing those strategies. I mean, again, it, it, I think it starts by going back to the basics, back to those agrarian structures that taught us how to build within a particular environment, whether that was a hot one or a cool one, a place with torrential rains or, or severe drought. We can start there and begin applying those sort of time-tested strategies to buildings in a way that make them more resilient. And then once we do that, we are certainly looking at the technologies, of course. We are thinking about 
buildings that are more heavily insulated and have greater amounts of capacity to meet the challenges of larger temperature swings and all of these things. And we're approaching it from both ways, from quite an intuitive way and then also a a highly technical way. Is there anything else that you foresee in the future of architecture that you can enlighten us with? I think we are excited to see that so many people are so attuned to the importance of their environment and their home environment. It means that the things that hopefully are built over the next 40 years will be quite a bit better than the the things that were built over the last. We're hopeful that we, as an industry, can take on climate change and take an earnest stab at at solving some of these problems. I I think I mentioned to you before that the building industry is the most impactful in terms of, of greenhouse gases and carbon emissions of any industry out there. And we feel a great deal of responsibility to be a positive change in light of what is very clear in, in, in terms of the direction that the planet is headed. Yeah, we hope we step up. We hope you, our listeners, come away with insights into how good design can contribute to a healthy future. We'll conclude with Ted Flato's views on the next generation of architects. We're only here for a short amount of time. And so the true impact we'll have is what the next generation does and the next generation does after that. And so just in our own office right now, David and I are certainly are transitioning our ownership of our firm to our younger architects. And because we've built, we've collected an incredible group of people and they're working around and along and being driven by this philosophy that that architecture ought to be a partner with the environment, I'm quite confident that this group of architects will continue to do what we started and do an even better job. And many of those architects will probably leave our firm over time and start other offices. And we've already watched that happen just in San Antonio. It's as proud of architects that have left our firm as ones that are in our firm, because it's all about having this thoughtful, positive impact upon the built environment. So I'm very positive about the future and about the young generation and they're embracing the challenge of global warming and the importance of building with longevity in mind and flexibility in mind. Thank you to Ted Flato and Evan Morris for being our guests. And thank you to Berkshire Ali and WTBR-FM for your support. In future episodes in this series, we'll look at housing as it is affected by building materials, construction methods, and climate. We'll hear from homeowners, builders, and a developer. We'll look at affordable housing, homelessness, and alternative housing solutions. All should provide fodder for discussion within and among the generations. Please let us know whether this program enhances your appreciation of generations other than yours. Tell us what you think about the issues we discuss. You can find more information about them on the Berkshire Ali website, berkshireali.org. You'll find this in future episodes of Living Well into the Future on WTBRFM.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can even ask your smart device to play the Living Well into the Future podcast. You can reach us at lwitf22 at gmail.com. That's lwitf22 at gmail.com. 
Our thanks from me, Julie B. Adler, to Berkshire Ali and its Changing Aging Special Interest Group, and WTBR-FM 87.9 Pittsfield for their support. And to our team members, Fran Weinberg, Alan Kofstein, Dale Borman-Fink, Lucy Kennedy, and our intern, Ashley Delraditz. Our music is by Michael Koppenheffer. Our graphics are by Gene Rosso. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and not of WTBR Berkshire Ali or the LWITF production team.